I'm Stuart J. Zully, author of My Life in Yankee Stadium. I also played Allen Ginsberg on The Sopranos. You're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. Share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. That's all it takes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Potabang. And if you're up for it, you can support the show by visiting glow.fm slash Potabang. If you'd like to participate in the trivia series for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabang on Instagram. And be on the lookout for more great guest interviews, including Robert Funaro, Sofia Milos, and Maureen Van Zant. Those are just a few that are on the horizon. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Stuart Zully. Stuart played Ginsburg, Tony's accountant, on the show. In addition to acting, Stuart worked at Yankee Stadium for over 40 years as a vendor. He assembled that experience into a wonderful book called My Life in Yankee Stadium. Stewart's a wonderful guy with an equally wonderful story most people never get to tell. But he tells it here, and we had a fun few hours together. So here it is, my conversation with Stuart Zully. Stuart, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Your book is very funny, and I enjoyed reading it. And a line I paid particular attention to was, when people ask absurd questions, I believe they deserve absurd answers. (laughs) I'm going to do my best to avoid that today. Thank you. Uh, Yankee Stadium vendor for 40 years, 2,500 different events, were there any historic or iconic events that you missed? Ooh. There was. I was at a wedding, and I missed the game when George Brett hit a home run for Kansas City. And then there was discussion. Do you remember that one? This was a Sunday in June, and I was at Tavern on the Green at my cousin's wedding, And there was the whole discussion about pine tar. That was the pine tar game. And his pine tar, which is the stickum on a bat so that the batter can hold on to the bat, technically it was a little bit too high on the bat. And there was a discrepancy about his home run. And they stopped the game at that point, I believe. And uh, so I missed that. And then after a few days, they... Uh, decided that the home run counted. So they had to finish the game. And that game I worked, that game was about 14 minutes. It was from the eighth inning. Uh, The Yankees, I think Kansas City got up, then the Yankees got up, then Kansas City got up, and the Yankees got up, and that was the end of the game. So I worked that little baby game. I I can't remember right now, but I think they must have played it before a regular game, you know. But um, but that was a very big game that I, I had to miss. Uh, and uh, one year, I had mononucleosis. 
during the World Series, I believe it was against the Dodgers in maybe it was 81 when they played the Dodgers. And so I had to miss, uh, I had to miss some games there. Uh, I said to my doctor, I, he said, I don't think you should work. You know, you've got mono. And I said, Doc, I'll be able to make my rent in this one game. And he said, I don't think you should work. And I didn't work. And uh, I'm glad I didn't work just because I was that sick. I was really bad. But uh, those were a couple of games that I missed. But I didn't miss many. <laughs> no. Like I said, 2,500 different events. Uh, crack of a bat or a crowd roar. Do you look back? Do you, do you check out what's going on? Or are you focused on what you're doing? Is it, is it so routine that you hear stuff all the time? Like, are you a fan at particular moments of a, of a game? Or? Oh, oh, yeah. Like, the crack of the bat is nothing. It's the crowd roar. Because I hear the crack of the bat all the time, and my back is to the field. But then when you hear, <sighs> then I turn. That's, it's, it's the crowd roaring. I know that there may be a double, a triple, you know, triple's the greatest play. And, um, why is a triple the greatest play? Well, it's really exciting. There's a lot going on. The, the, the runner is running as fast as he can. Sometimes, you know, on a double, a guy just sort of limps into second base, bangs off the wall, but a triple, the guy's got to dig for a triple, the runner. And then in the outfield, the ball is bounding around and every second is crucial because that outfielder has got to hit the cutoff man, probably the second baseman or the shortstop in the, in the short outfield, and then the throw to third and the tag. So there's so many things. It's like a bang-bang play. And obviously an inside-the-park home run is amazing, but a triple, um, they say that's the most exciting play. That and a steal of home. That's another one. Okay. It's very yeah. I don't even know if I've ever seen a steal of home, actually, in 2,500 events. But that's rare. It's pretty rare. Why did you become a vendor? Well, I was a Yankee fan back then in 1970. I say 1970 A.D. And uh, I was at a game and I saw my English teacher who was working as a checker in a station and the checker keeps track of the stock that's going out of the room. So he'll count, you know, that's your second box of peanuts or whatever. And I saw him and I was shocked to see him, my English teacher from high school. And long story short, I asked him if he could help me get a job there. I thought, wow, this is great to work at the baseball game, make money, see my heroes. It's perfect. And that's what happened. He helped me get in. I, I write about it in the book where I actually, he helped me forge my working papers. You had to be 16. I was only 15. And he helped me do that, changed the year of my birth one year earlier. And I started working at New York Giant football games. And that's how I started, that, way back in 1970. <clears throat> and it was a perfect job for me. I lived in the Bronx. It was a short subway ride down to the stadium. And then I jumped back on the train afterwards, and I made my money. And slowly but surely, you know, I was there five years, 10 years, 20 years. It was a long time at a job, and it kept going. It just kept going. What is a vendor's economics? 
You're trying to find out how much money I made? <laughs> I know, I, you, you answer that, and, and it's nobody's business how much money you made, but what is the economics? You, you describe a vendor as a middleman. Right. Um, is there a union? There is a union, Local 153, and it's tied in, I think, with uh, hotel workers. Okay. Union. <clears throat> and the way it works for vendors is that you make commission. So as much as you sell, then you make more money that day. Right. If you're stuck and you're lazy or whatever, and you just sell one box of peanuts, you're going to make peanuts that day. But um, if you hustle, and if you're there long enough, you learn how to hustle, uh, then you can make some decent money because it's a concentrated time. You're, you start, you get there bef- well before the game starts, but you start probably 15 minutes before the national anthem. And uh, the people are starting to gather and you're selling slowly. Then the game starts and it picks up. And then you're working hard until either the seventh inning or two hours after the first pitch, which would be now the game starts at 7.05. So it would be at 9.05. And uh, unless you sold something like ice cream, Cracker Jacks, and then you work later. They just restrict the beer. I sold beer a lot of most of the time. And uh, and then the more you sell, the more you make. So that's the economics of it. And uh, does the commission rate increase as you become more senior? Like the percentage, does it go up as you work longer? Yeah, it goes up a, a, a little bit, but it does. So when I first started, when I first started, I wasn't in the union. You had to uh, work there. I believe you had to work there for three years. And then you got into the union. And you really wanted to be into the in the union because if you weren't in the union, they would only hire people who were good and fast on a daily basis. Whereas if you were in a union, you gathered seniority. And so after you're there for five years, 10 years, 20 years, I hate to say 30 and 40, but <laughs> 30, then you get to choose your item in order of your seniority and that helps. So as you get older, you may not sell as much as the younger guys, but your seniority helps you to get, let's say, beer behind home plate, for instance, because that was your choice. So that's ahead of the young kid who sells beer in the bleachers or maybe upstairs, you know, or something like that. Is beer the best? Is beer what you want to be selling? Most of the time, beer is beer is the item. Uh, but there are some days when it's over 100 degrees when you really want to sell water because the difference between beer and water among other things is that you could sell water to a five-year-old kid you can't do that with beer right so you're restricted on your clientele and also when it's really hot i don't know do you drink beer yeah yeah when it's really hot and you're outside you can't drink that much beer you know i mean you just it's so uncomfortable but you can drink water yeah. And you just keep drinking water. So guys, very often guys would prefer to sell water over beer on those really, really hot days. Describe a typical day as a vendor. Uh-huh. 40 years is a long time, but describe a typical day. Right. Well, so let's say the game starts at 7 o'clock. You need to be at the stadium at 5.30. You sign in. You fill out a card. And as I said, with seniority, you uh, put your choices down. So you may say, I want beer behind first base. Second choice would be beer in the loge. Third choice might be beer in the upper deck. 
and then it could drop down, and then you'd say, okay, hot dog behind whole plate, hot dogs in the loge. And then according to your seniority, when I left, I was number 15. So the guys who were 1 through 14, they got their first choices. They'd been there longer than you. Yeah, there's still guys there. That wow. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lifers we call them because that's their life. But yeah, I was number 15. And uh, so anyway, so then the um, the administration and the guys that handle who goes where, they sort through all of those cards. So that's probably from 5.30 to 6 o'clock. And then they figure out, okay, this guy's working in this station and these guys are working. And they've got a lot of work to do. There's 150 vendors perhaps. So they've got to figure out who's selling Cracker Jacks out in the bleachers and who's got pennants and who's got peanuts and who's got whatever. And um, now in the new stadium, there's so many other items. But anyway, so then they used to do what was called a roll call, and they would say, okay, you're here, you're there, and then you'd listen, then you go down to the money room, and you'd get change. Uh, you'd get change for you. Prior to that, actually, you would change your clothing, but then you would get change, so if you needed quarters, if you needed singles, to make change out in the in the uh, in the stadium. And then you'd go to your station, grab your beer, let's say, and head out there and go, hey, beer. And then you're on your way. And you keep doing that. And during the course of the game, you turn in your money periodically every two or three cases. You turn in whatever you've taken in, $200 or so. And then at the end of the night, it's all tallied up. And let's say you sold six cases or eight cases. They tell you, how much money you turned in, and depending upon your percentage of what you might make, you figure out what you earn, and then you sign your card, you check out, and that's it. And that's the middleman aspect of it. They give you the beer, and you're the go-between with the fan, give them the beer, etc., and then bring back the money to the station. If uh, you don't get beer, what's number two? What are the number two and three items that you want to be selling? Well, uh, hot dogs were good. Okay. Now, this this is back, this is pre-new stadium, right. I'm talking. Pre-sushi. Pre-sushi, exactly. <laughs> Very good. Because now they have, I was at the stadium a few weeks ago, and they have these big, giant, frozen margarita drinks in a big plastic container that sells for 20 bucks or so. And... Um, that's probably a good item. Uh, it's got a long neck to it, and it's sort of an item that, you know, after you finish it, you would take it home and have it as a souvenir at home and, you know, in your backyard or whatever. Two birds with one stone. Yeah, there you go. And uh, But back when I was mostly working at the old stadium, it went basically beer, hot dogs, and if it was a hot day, of course, ice cream was good, and peanuts... Well, the next one down, but sometimes peanuts were a good item because people go to the game and they want a bag of peanuts. It's, it's quintessential kind of, baseball. Yeah, that's it. And so, and peanuts is okay whether it's cold, whether it's hot. People have peanuts, you yeah. know. So uh, that worked, especially even beer drinkers. You know, they need some, the peanuts. One has to accompany the other. Exactly. What about the work made you stick it out for four decades? Hmm. Well, money is one thing, but t- 
decide to do it for as long as you did, what what was it? Was it as simple as happiness? Well, happiness is a beautiful thing. <laughs> and I was happy. I, I, I tell people, you know, I was at a place where people were there to have a good time. You write happy. The reason I use the word happy is because when I read it, it I felt like you were happy. Yeah. Is, I, that, is that an accurate assessment? No, that, that, that is an accurate assessment. Uh, you know, I like meeting people. And even though it's a quick exchange, you're selling beer and it's like, okay, $8, boom, thanks, that's it. You don't even say, you don't even say thanks. I would actually, I did say thanks, but that was it, you know. Uh, but later I had a souvenir stand. And when you have a souvenir stand, you are sort of locked to that stand and people come up and you chat with people. And they tell you stories. And they came in from Minnesota and they've always dreamt about coming to Yankee Stadium. And those stories, and you see these kids, their eyes would light up when they're looking at all of those souvenirs at, at the stand and you know, posters and T-shirts and hats and everything that's there. And uh, that was really, really enjoyable. I, I, I enjoyed the energy of the crowd. And, uh, and New York is, you know, New York is a great and uh, hanging around the stand and talking about this and that was fun. And... Uh, and 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 then seeing people from even out of the country, many people who didn't even know the game of baseball, but the Yankees are so iconic that they came to Yankee Stadium. It's in their tourist book. Go to Yankee Stadium, and it's a fun place to be. Where else do you go where people are screaming and cheering? And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You know. And you get to be outside. And you get to be outside. And as it turns out, because I'm also an actor. It helped my voice. It helped my body. I was strong, you know, going up and down those steps. And the timing worked out well, too, so that, for instance, if I had an acting job, I didn't go to Yankee Stadium for that game. And essentially, the hot dog guy moved up to beer that day. So I mentioned it in the book. All the vendors were pulling for me to book a job. So this way they would move up the list. Because most of them are lifers. Most of them are lifers. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But you also write about a bunch of people that were doing various things, that it was a stepping stone to something else. Right, right. There was a, yeah, there was a guy, he was an assistant principal for many, many years. Another guy was um, actually a prison guard who's still there. I saw him two weeks ago. He's still there. He, in fact, he, he, he's older now. And I don't think he's a prison guard anymore, but he's there. But he moved to North Carolina. And the job is so uh, good for somebody like that, that he comes up when the Yanks are home for eight games and he stays at his daughter's house or he stays at his friend's house. And he goes on a road trip, essentially, to New York and works the eight games and makes his money and then goes back to his semi-retirement down in North Carolina. And he does that, you know, 10 times a season. And know? if you're in the union, you can just pick it. You can come in and work anytime you want. Is that kind of how it works? Like you can take a you can take an extended period of time off and then just come back to the job? Well, a season is basically, you know, the Yanks are home for, let's say, 10 days, and then they're on the road for 10 days. So when they're on the road, you can be wherever you want to be. Right. But you have to work a certain percentage of games Got in it. a season to maintain your seniority. Got it. So you have to work... About 40% of the games. So that's 
essentially 31, 32 games. Are there people that do it because they are just super fans and they want to be at every game and they can't afford season tickets? Is there any population of vendors that are that? I doubt it. Okay. I don't think so. What made you finally decide to retire? Well, there were a few things, but one was my shoulder told me it was time to retire. I had to have a shoulder operation. Uh, It was about uh, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. What year did you retire? I guess it was 2013. Okay. Something like that. They all get jumbled up, you know. But I do remember that I had shoulder surgery for sure. And so my arm was in a sling for most of the summer, and um, and I would not have been able to go back. Now, I would have been able to keep my seniority because if you bring a medical note and you don't make your 40%, you can maintain your seniority. But it was time for me to go. I, I had moved upstate New York, and I had been coming in to games, just like this guy from North Carolina, and uh, it was... It just wasn't working out as well later on. I couldn't sell as much as I used to. In the new stadium, the money was not really as good as it was in the old stadium for the vendors. Why? In the new stadium, as you said before, you can get sushi. So if you come to the game, it used to be, hey, let's get a hot dog and a beer. Now it's, let's get a sushi and a mojito. (laughs) And you have those options. You could get a steak, a good steak in the stadium. So... The standard hot dog, peanuts, beer is taking a back seat, and that's what the vendors sell. The vendors are not selling sushi yet. Uh, They may, and that's probably not a bad idea. Hey, sushi here. But um, so there are that many more choices for the fans when they go to the game. And and so the, the, the vendors get a little bit squeezed. How do you feel about technology? Is technology going to, at some point, you think, replace the vendor? Like being able to order it from your phone and have someone just drop it off at your seat? I think that's what's going it's, it's going to happen with in in the world at large, not only in the stadium, but right. everywhere. And uh, in fact, because vending, it's always been a cash business. And then when I was back a, f- a few weeks ago, they were saying how th- they're starting to work on getting vendors to have credit card uh, apparatus so they can use the the square yeah. and slide it and boom. And um, so if you get to that level, then it goes to the next level, which is, well, we don't even need that guy. As you say, have the app, order this thing. Let's say, you know, I want to have a, uh, a, a turkey sandwich and a beer. And then you put in your seat. And then somebody would come and deliver you the turkey sandwich and the beer. So there's no vendor. There's no vendor in the way, so to speak, of the fans. And um, unfortunately, that would just change the experience at the ballpark, you know. It's fun dealing with the vendors. And it's fun the vendors dealing with the fans and yelling. And, you know, that's what people enjoyed when you look at old footage from the old stadium and you see fans... Not arguing with vendors, but conversing with them and saying, yeah, that guy was robbed, he was safe. And then the vendor's saying, yeah, you're right. And, you know, that camaraderie between the fans and the employees at the ballpark is part of the energy of the game. And that gets taken away 
when you just look at your phone and you say, hey, this turkey sandwich looks good, boom, and then somebody magically brings you a turkey sandwich and they're gone, that's it, because they're delivering another turkey sandwich somewhere else. And uh, and then you're sitting there eating a turkey sandwich watching the game. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that interaction is uh, part of the pastime. Yeah. Um, you had an interesting anecdote in the book, too, about how sometimes fans would— you know, if there was a delay of game or a rain delay, they would ask you, you know, is they, are they going to come out and play as if you knew, <laughs> exactly. you know, this is one of the funny things I would say, like somehow just being associated with Yankee stadium gives yeah. you, gives vendors or people that work there some level of, uh, of knowledge right. or like, like you're, you're like, you're a sage or an Oracle about how exactly. these things will play out. Yeah. You, you, you work here. So, you know, is it going to keep raining? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't work in the front office and I'm not God. <laughs> right. You know? Exactly. But they would whisper it to me yeah. as if, listen, I won't tell anybody, but tell me, are they going to play? That's great. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, were you ever able to enjoy baseball as a game or pastime? And, is, and now maybe and since you've stopped working as a vendor or has the work tainted that in some way, the fan experience? Well, I, I think I think I'm I'm a little bit tainted now because I was there so much, but I don't think it has to do with my job as much as the game I think has changed a bit. And uh, you know, I guess it started with the Rolades relief pitcher of the of the week, you know, and everything is so tied into um advertising because they have to pay these guys a lot of money. So it just goes from one thing to another. So everything is tied into that. And the beauty of the game, I think I had a line in the book where I said, they used to uh, love the game. Now they love the money. And uh, so players are making an exorbitant amount of, I mean, $25 million a year. When I was younger, I remember um, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale held out for $100,000 a year when they were playing with the Dodgers. And a, a, a um, somebody who was working and made minimum wage back then maybe was making $2 an hour. So now let's say minimum wage is $10 an hour. So that's five times what the minimum wage was back then. But the players are not making five times $100,000. They're making $25 million. Yeah. And so that distorts the whole economics of the game, you know, I mean, it's it's complicated, but uh, I, I see that happen. And that's why a lot of people like to go to a minor league game because they just they're the players are not as concerned about how they look and whatever. They're playing to try to get up to the major leagues and they're really leaving it on the field. Not to say that major league players don't. They do play hard. It's just I think that maybe I have been tainted by these other factors, yet I do enjoy watching a good ball game. I mean, it, and I I don't like how they're trying to change these things. I just heard that they're considering that if there's a wild pitch, you could run to first and get first base. Have you heard about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about that. And they were playing with the idea of, well, if we go into extra innings, we start the inning with a player on second base. 
Just free two bases. Free two bases. I haven't heard that. That's... Yes, yeah, they were toying with that in like a, a low minor leagues in the A league or something, so that this way the game wouldn't. You know, they're always so concerned about well, the game is so long and it's so slow and all of this. And um, what are your thoughts on speeding up the game in general? Do you think there's anything that can be done to speed up the game? Well, I think they probably could limit how many times you step out of the batter's box. You know, once you get in there, be ready. Let's go. You know, when a guy is at uh, the foul line in basketball, I don't think they could take too long to, you know, lift up their socks and, you know, scratch themselves or whatever. They're given a certain amount of time to do it. Like in football, they're given a certain amount of time. You've got 30 seconds. Call the play and let's go. And so— There's no delay of game in baseball. In other sports, if well, sometimes a- there might be a delay of game where you see the, uh, the pitching coach comes out and they huddle at the mound, and then the ump comes out and says, "Okay, let's go." But uh, but that's the only time, you know. And I've never seen—I don't know about a delay of game called. You know, they usually abide by it, and then the pitching coach goes back in the dugout, and that's that. But I think when the batter's in the box and the pitcher has the ball on the mound, you know. What do they pitch? They pitch 80 or 90 pitches if they go deep into a game now. Be ready for 80 or 90 pitches. You come up to bat four times in a game. Be ready. Be ready. And that may trim a little bit and still have the action of the game, you know. But um, but to alter the game so drastically with either getting first base or starting with guys on second base— I was at long extra inning games in all of the games that I've worked. There were plenty of extra inning games. And I stuck around because I would often, after I checked out when I was younger, I used to like to hang out and watch the game after I finished working. And if it went into extra innings and I didn't have anything in the morning the next day after uh, on this night game, I would stick around. And that was fun. I mean, it gets in the 12th and the 13th and the 14th, and everybody's looking at each other going, when is this going to end? But you're in this communal um, experience, and it's not hyped up. Guy on second, the pitcher throws a wild pitch, and then a guy hits a fly out, sacrifice fly, and the game can end on something that's bogus. Uh, a, you know, a wild pitch and a fly out. So I, I, don't, I don't vote for that. <laughs> How do you feel about fewer innings? No, that's for the little leagues, you know. I, I I haven't thought about fewer innings. It's one of the things that you hear, you read about every so often, ways, because uh, you mentioned the, the money. Part In part, the reason the money's gotten so big is because of these TV deals, right? Right. The fans that are buying tickets are not paying for all of these salaries. It's the... It's the TV money. Yes. And what is TV? What is TV? It's a product. Mm -hmm. They want a faster, more streamlined, more efficient product. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways they want to achieve that, or they've talked about achieving that, is with fewer innings. I don't like that because one of the wonderful things about baseball is the history of baseball and records in baseball. And so if a game is suddenly now seven innings instead of nine innings, it changes things like what a complete game is for a pitcher, how many times a batter hits. It will affect how many at-bats somebody has during the course of a season. So records would be altered. And it's it, it's just like saying, well, maybe we should shorten the bases. No, don't shorten the base. This is the game. And people like the game. Maybe you shouldn't get behind the uh, the. the 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 ball of paying these guys 25 million dollars because that's what's happened 
where the players get so much money that then they have to figure out how are we going to pay for this? And they do these, what I think are hokey things, they change the hat. The Yankees probably have 40 hats now. It happened, it started, I think, with Michael Jordan when he changed his number. Kobe Bryant changed his number so they could sell, oh, you have his old number jersey. That's the old one, Tommy. You should get the new one. And then the kid has to buy a second jersey. LeBron James just recently tried to change his number to accommodate uh, Anthony Davis, and Nike stepped in and said, no, you have to keep this for at least one more season because we made a tremendous investment in that number being yours. There you go. First time it's ever happened. There you go. <laughs> that's that's it exactly. So here, the player wanted to do it, but the investment got in the way. Yeah. And uh, and that's what happens is so they're going at it in a I think in a backwards way to be able to justify paying these guys so much money. What are some unwritten rules between vendors? Some inside baseball on vendors, if you will. Well, the main code of honor is don't go up my aisle. So if I'm selling beer. And I go down to the down to the field, and then I'm going to be walking. There's only one way to go, which is straight up the aisle. You know, sometimes you could sort of, in the old stadium, you could work around some empty seats and then go up another aisle. But basically, if you're down an aisle, then another vendor should not, at the top of the aisle, sell. Even if somebody asks you for a beer— you have to wave that. You, the unwritten rule is you should wave that off and say there's somebody in your aisle and let that guy have that business because you don't want two beer vendors in one aisle when there is the next section. There's nobody. So that was that that was a main one, which is if you're if you see another vendor with your item in that aisle. I mean, if you have a different item, then it's fair game. You know, you have hot dogs or peanuts or whatever. But uh, but if that's the case and you have beer, and the other vendor has beer, then that's his aisle, and you find another aisle. Um, It's the same thing when you go in to the station to pay, just like anywhere else, you know, whoever's in first, they get to pay first, they get to take their case out first. It sometimes got tricky. I, I mentioned a little bit about it in the book, which is the guys that give you the beer the porters in the station, at the end of the night, you gave them a tip. We used to call it a subway. And you gave them a tip. You'd give them five bucks at the end of the night, just like a waitress would give to a busboy in a bar. And uh, so sometimes those uh, porters had their favorites because of the almighty dollar. So if you gave the guy $10 last night and I gave him five and we both sold the same amount of beer, but you you were a big sport. You gave him 10. So then when you came in the next night and you went for a beer, he gave you the colder beer. He gave, put some more ice in your case, whereas he gave me just a little bit of ice because he was he got taken care of by you. Mm. So th- th- those are those unwritten rules that the general fan has no idea what's no, going but on it's, back there. But it's very interesting. Yeah. You worked an Ali fight. Yes. What was that like? I'm obviously too young to have ever seen him fight. Mm. Just the man, the myth, the legend still persists to this day. What was that night like, the crowd, the vibe? Like, how did it compare to other major events that you've been a part of? Working a prize fight, down when you're down low, and I was working down low, I sold hot dogs that night. 
and uh, actually sold a hot dog to Jimmy Connors. The tennis great. And um, there's just an electricity. It's sort of similar to the electricity of a World Series game when you've got celebs that are there and we would call them the high rollers, you know. The, I, I, I was at Shea Stadium and uh, Donald Trump was there. Um, that's a high roller. And uh, there were a lot of guys like that, not just sports celebrities or uh, entertainers, but, you know, politicians, et cetera. So at a prize fight, that's what's really exciting about a prize fight is at any second, that punch could happen. And so you are you have to pay close attention in those three minutes in the in the round. And uh, and that was very focused attention. And of course, it was Muhammad. That was Muhammad Ali versus Ken Norton. And I, I, again, I talk about that in the book where I say, and a lot of people felt that Ken Norton won that fight. And people think even that Muhammad Ali thought Ken Norton won that fight, but Ali got the got the nod, and he he got the win. But um, Norton hit him hard and quieted him down, which was really interesting about hard that to fight. do. Hard to do, exactly. I think the fight's on, I mean, everything's on YouTube, it seems, and the fight is on YouTube, and they talk about how Ali started with his, you know, bravado and everything, his Ali shuffle, and it wasn't long before he wasn't shooting his mouth off, and he really, he was quiet, and he was focused, and he knew he was in a fight. And, um, but he had been the champion. And as they say in fighting... You've got to really knock the champion down. You've got to knock him out. You've got to really win to take the belt from the champ. And I think that's what happened that night. Mm. That uh, I, I do think that's what happened. Makes me think of Rocky. Um, Apollo Creed is the, in the first movie. He's uh-huh. just sort of taunting and talking and talking, and then Rocky just wears him down over time. Yes. But he didn't take out the champ. Right. And that's why it was a split decision in favor of... Apollo. Right. That's the closest reference I have to Rocky. No, and and you know, I'm sure that's... It was based on that. It was, a lot of it was based on the Ali fights. And Apollo Creed, uh, the character, was very emblematic of the bravado and the braggadociousness of uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Favorite concert or favorite concert memory? Paul McCartney gave a concert at the new stadium. I worked at the new stadium for the first three years. Uh... And Paul McCartney, I I didn't I guess I didn't expect that much. I don't know, but he covered so much. He was terrific. Um, a memory I had was also at the new stadium. There was a night of some heavy metal, Metallica, and some of those really heavy men. And the crowd was. To me, you know, I, I use the term you know, like bikers and tattoos, and, you know, I mean, rings coming out of who knows where. But the people were so sweet. They were so nice and polite. I mean, it really was a lesson for me because I didn't know what to expect because the music was just <laughs> to me. It wasn't my favorite music. But uh, that was really fascinating to me how I went in with, I guess with both of those, with McCartney, I expected one thing and I got something else. And with Metallica and uh, whoever else, the other band, Iron Maiden, I think. 
And um, it was not my thing. Years ago, I used to like Black Sabbath way before your time. That was uh, I guess Ozzy Osbourne, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And early Paranoid. I used to listen to that stuff. But uh, Metallica took it to another level. So you were pleasantly surprised in both instances. I was pleasantly surprised. You write about, turning to acting a little bit now, you write about acting as your balance. How many years into vending did you make that determination? And what was it about acting that gave you balance as opposed to some other work, safer work? Mm Mm-hmm. Well... Acting is an interesting thing because it's a creative outlet. You know, you've had uh, actors come in here and talk, and I'm sure they, some of them bring that up, that um, they're able to, through these characters, be able to uh, touch on elements of their own lives that they can't necessarily express in their private life. And, um, and you can go crazy, you can go crazy. I actually was watching one of the episodes of The Sopranos the other day and seeing Edie Falco when she threw his stuff out the window. That was an incredible performance. Now, maybe Edie Falco does that in her private life. I, I doubt it, and I hope she doesn't have to. But here she's got this opportunity to just go crazy. And... um and she did, and she was just incredible at that. And that's what you're able to do as an outlet, uh, as as an actor, or as a performer. Maybe Metallica, they're able to get their aggressions out, and they're playing in Yankee Stadium. And uh, so that's how it helps. And some, some people just pick up a guitar and sit in the basement and, you know, pluck a tune and they get their creativity and it helps to give them a release and some balance. And so that was helpful for me. I went to acting school. I lived in New York, of course, and I went to acting school for three years. And then I started my acting career and then that evolved into other things. I was a director and I wrote a, co-wrote a couple of screenplays and, um, and you just get that, have that outlet. You had the creative bug and this was a way bug. for you to... This was the way for you to see that through. Yeah, yeah. You booked an identity theft commercial that I watched on YouTube, by the way. Very funny. I had never seen it before. Uh Um, It was kind of a breakout moment for you personally and professionally. Right. Uh, And you said something in the book that was interesting to me. You were going to potentially have a major conflict with your vending job during a playoff run. But you decided not to worry about things that were out of your control, you write. And my question is, I I thought that was interesting. Where did that sudden burst of Zen-like awareness come from? At that time, I had a souvenir stand. Excuse me. And uh, when you have a souvenir stand, you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'm not coming in today and the hot dog guy can sell uh, beer. When you have a souvenir stand, the only way you can get out of it basically is with a death certificate. I mean, you have your souvenir stand, you are locked into wherever your section is, and you set up your stand, and you are there every single game. When I had a souvenir stand, and I had that for a couple of years, I did not miss a game. And so you could be leaving your house, and it could be raining or whatever, but you still have to go because the rain could stop and they could play the game. Well, when it came to the playoffs, and this was a playoff 
uh, time. And then I heard that I booked the commercial and then they were deciding it's either going to be on Monday or Tuesday. Now I knew that the Yanks, I think they were playing Minnesota on Tuesday. And I thought, oh, please, I hope this falls on the Monday. If it falls on the Tuesday, I'm going to be in trouble. And that would be um, uh, the old fork in the road where you have to make a decision and perhaps pass on this commercial, which can pay a lot of money, or stick to the, the tried and true security job that I ended up having for 40 years. And I was worried about it, and I was worried. It's like, oh, the good news is you got the job. The bad news is it might fall out on the day of your and conflict with your other job. So that's, I guess, somewhere in there I thought, I'm not going to worry about it. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's a great mindset, and that's what really struck me because uh, it's so hard, and you know this better than most people, it's so hard to get uh, a booking. On a, on, a, on a gig like that. And when right. you have something safe and that you don't really want to do, you really want to pursue this acting thing, right. how do you find that calmness? That was what I found so interesting. Like, you also write about how, um, in a different anecdote, uh, before you had to do something that you were, that was driving you crazy, you took a shower. Um, and I was thinking, wow, you've only done that once? I do that all the time before <laughs> before a big decision. Because it's hard to find calm and, and be able to only think, live in the moment, and you were very present. So I was just curious if there was... Uh, a metaphysical book you were reading or if you were on some kind of a drug or if you just, or if you just had a, if you just had this sort of, if there was anything in your upbringing that taught you to just kind of be in the moment and just worry about what you, what you can control. You know, I think experience and and getting older helps, you know, when you're younger and you can freak out a little bit. And then later on you get into this philosophy of what are they going to do? Are they going to kill me? You know, that's the biggie. So shy of that, I guess in my mind, I started to think, well, maybe if it does fall out on the same day, I'll work. Maybe it'll rain that day. And so maybe I'll be able to luck out or maybe we'll be shooting in the morning and I'll get friendly with them and I'll let them know that if we could get out of here by three o'clock, that would be so good for me. Do you know what I mean? And but I didn't want to venture into that because I would be losing sleep. And very often when we worry, it's, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be. It's a waste of time. Worry. Worry is, you know, save it for when you really need to worry. (laughs) No, it's a great mindset. And I loved reading that. Uh Um, Segwaying to The Sopranos, you describe James Gandolfini as the most humble guy you ever worked with. Talk about that. Well, he, he came out of... Jersey, of course, surprise. He came out of Jersey and came from blue-collar uh, background. His mother, I think, worked in a, um, in a luncheonette at a public school uh, serving, serving lunch to the kids. His father was a janitor. So he was a real blue-collar type of a guy. And he didn't get his success until The Sopranos. I mean, he had a movie here and there, and he did plays. But The Sopranos really opened him up. And um, I remember bumping into him after I did The Sopranos and I bumped into him at Yankee Stadium. I was wearing, you know, and I was at work selling beer. And I was a little bit humbled by that. You know, here, on the one hand, I'm sharing the screen with him. And then there I am in Yankee Stadium and I've got my beer vending job. 
And I said to him something to the effect of, yeah, this is my other job, you know, my other life, you know, and I'm kind of like kicking the can kind of feeling. And he said, that's cool. And I realized, yeah, it was cool. And it was, you know, to be an artist, to be an actor, you've also got to figure out how to pay the rent. And finding that balance uh, is, if I'm doing a job that I enjoy to help pay the bills, and then I'm able to have that creativity side on, on the other side of my life, that's a beautiful thing. And he recognized that because I'm sure he had a bunch of buddies who are really fine actors and who he also knew that they were plumbers or they were in their father's construction business or whatever in New Jersey and doing what they had to do to get a job, you know. A lot of those guys on The Sopranos, they were thrilled to be in that situation. They they knew, I could sense that they knew how fortunate they were to be on such a good high-end show that was... It was like shooting a movie every 10 days, and uh, and they were appreciative of that. And uh, and I think Gandolfini recognized that as well. How did you get the Sopranos job? It's funny. I, I Like virtually every job that I've had as an actor, you've got to audition. And so I got this audition. And, you know, when you get an audition... They just send you your scene. You don't know the whole script. You don't know anything. I knew The Sopranos, the show. Uh, but um, <clears throat> so I went out to Silver Cup Studios in uh, Queens. And there's a room full of people hanging out. I mean, you go there and you're thinking, I'm going to get this and this is going to be great or whatever. And then you walk in and, and, and you, there's a sign-in sheet. And then you see 20 guys that look just like you. And they're looking at the same scene, and they're all ready to go in there. It's kind of daunting. And then they often run late at these auditions. And I was down the hall when they called out my name. And you want to be nice and relaxed when you step in. It's like the basketball player at the foul line with two seconds to go. Takes a deep breath. He dribbles the ball three times. He takes a shot. You get into this rhythm. So that's how you want it to be when you go into an audition, a big audition like this. But I was up the, down the hall, and he said, Stuart Zully? And I went, yeah, yeah, right here. And I come running down the hall, and I'm like a little bit out of breath as I'm stepping into the room. So that threw me off a little bit. Um, because I had been waiting, they were like 45, 50 minutes late because uh, they were seeing so many people. And then I actually I went in there, and I flubbed a line because I played his accountant and I had a line about being his accountant and I said his attorney. And the casting director, uh, Georgianne Walken, after I finished it, she said, it's accountant, not a, a attorney. And nobody else seemed to be bothered by it, but she opened up her mouth. And I knew it, of course, you know, whenever you, whenever you do it, you know when you miss something or not. And so... Inwardly, I thought, oh, boy, I blew it. I, I didn't say the lines as written, et cetera. And that was a dumb word to mess up. I was playing his accountant, and I said I was his attorney. But later, after I booked the job and I spoke to the director, and I asked him about that, and he said to me and totally reassured me, and he said, you walked in and you had it. You, you were the guy, you know, and that's what it is. When you get cast, after all is said and done, 
you're the guy. Because they see people who are not, and they say, and they're thinking to themselves, well, maybe if we do this, if he had glasses with this, that. But if you're the guy, you're the guy. And uh, fortunately, I was the guy. And it was a, a great, great experience for me. But the only part you read for for that show? Yeah. Or had you been in for anything else? No, ever? that was it. That was it. Were you a fan of the show? Had you been watching seasons one through three? Like, were you, was it something that you was part of your media diet? Yeah, pretty, pretty religiously. I, I, I actually, I got to it a little bit late. So I don't think I saw all of the first year. That was with, with his mom. She was great. Amazing. And uh, she was amazing. And uh, I actually met her one time. The, I saw her in a play. Nancy uh, Marchand. Nancy Marchand. She did a play. And it was the day that Laurence Olivier died. And I waited afterwards and I said to her, you know, on such a momentous day when Laurence Olivier passed away, it was so thrilling and exciting to see you up on stage doing your work because it was just wonderful. And she appreciated that, you know, and uh, I appreciated it to be there. Uh, but I, but getting back to what you said, yeah, I, I used to watch the show and I don't know about other actors who've come in, but sometimes that show was as good as a top-level movie on a weekly basis. I mean, it was, it was the creative eye that they had, David Chase and the directors, to choose the way that they constructed a scene and the small stuff. It's really the small stuff. 100%. It's not the big stuff. It's not yelling and it's not screaming, but it's just the little things that guys do uh, that make it real. The little moments that people have, yeah, in- encounters they have with each other. Exactly. And that's what was so wonderful about uh, that seeing that show and seeing... Uh, you know, the human condition up there. And he had such a heart. That character had such a, And everybody, I'm sure they've said it, everybody loved that guy. Yeah. I mean, he was... I, I mentioned a story in the, in the book. We started... This, the longest scene that I had was what they call a walk and talk. And uh, it starts... It started in one corner, and we walk and we talk. And it started with him putting down... Ten hundred dollar bills, and an extra took the money, and then we started to walk and talk. Well, while just before we started to shoot, the extra says to Gandolfini, uh, "When you put the bills down, could you put them all face up? Because I gather them like this." And I'm thinking, "No, don't say that to the star. Don't you don't you don't do that. You don't tell the star." Anything. You don't even look at them unless they look at you. And the, essentially, I was behind Gandolfini sort of waving my arms to this extra, like, no, don't do that. He's going to shoot us. You know, that's what I was thinking. And Gandolfini says, yeah, sure. How do you want him? You want him all like this? And he was so welcoming to be working with this other guy who wanted to talk about the specifics of how he wanted it. And I told that story to a buddy of mine and he just couldn't believe it. And it was who James Gandolfini was. I mean, 
he, that's that's how he treated an extra. That's how he treated an electrician. That's how he treated everybody that he ran into was another guy and a regular guy. And that was part of what made him so special. Two questions that just came to, to just came to my brain. Were you working at Yankee Stadium when you found out that he died? You know where I was? I was in a I, I moved upstate and I was in a club listening to Leo Kotke. Do you know Leo Kotke? The name is very the familiar. Guitarist. He's yeah. a wonderful guitarist. And um my aunt was very old at the time. And I it was sort of almost touch and go when she was going to go around that time. And so I was checking my phone. And when I was checking my phone that night, it was in June, I guess. And, uh, and I saw that he, that he died in Italy. Uh, it just shot through me. That was as it was for everybody. It was just so shocking. He was just so young, you know, and was such a wonderful actor. I wonder because of what it must have been like if there was a game. I'm going to have to go back and look this up. I should have thought of it ahead of time. It would have been kind of cool to kind of see, like, was there actually a game at Yankee Stadium that day? And what the vibe must have been like. I'm sure there would have been a moment of silence or something. Um, the finale of the show, the series finale, that was also, it was a Sunday night in June in 2008. Were you working that night? Do you know? Do you have any recollection? I don't think so. Okay. It would have been a real whiz-bang humdinger if you had been at both. <laughs> but I asked the question just because it came to me. You mentioned that you saw him at Yankee Stadium and you were kind of self-conscious or humbled by the fact that you were a vendor and you shared the screen with him. Right. You mentioned a couple of other episodes with accomplished actors, directors that you've been able to cross paths with. How did you work through that self-consciousness and self-doubt? That was another fascinating thing for me that you had, you know, you had these amazing things happen on one side of your life, but then on another, you had to have these encounters in a, in a humbling manner. How did you manage that? How did you think, what was your mindset for that? I guess it goes back again to when you're there for a while and you realize this is just a job. It's just a way to make money and it's not the end all as to who I am. There's more to me than being a beer vendor in Yankee Stadium. Yeah. You know, I'd say to people, think outside the Bronx. <laughs> and uh so and and that's what happened that that's how it is with a lot of people where here James Gandolfini was an actor he went on to become a producer and when you're a producer then you do a lot of different things and decision making etc and it happens now with a you take like a Reese Witherspoon for instance she's an actress and then she becomes a director and a writer and there's many many facets to who you are so if you just Label yourself, oh, I'm just a vendor and here I am and I'm seeing this actor. I hope he doesn't see me or whatever. That's how I might think when I was 30. But as I got older and I recognized that, okay, I was fortunate to have the Yankee job to be able to survive as an actor. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, a, a different spin on what I was doing to make a living. And so I was fortunate at the stadium, like I did a movie with Jack Nicholson went to the screening in the city, saw him, talked to him. I had a couple of scenes in the movie with him, this movie Wolf. And then the next day, as it turns out, there he is in Yankee Stadium. 
And there I am in my beer outfit selling beer. And I gave him a beer. I gave his girlfriend a beer. And I was sitting, talking with, not sitting, but like I was stooped over on my knee with my beer case and talking to him. Does Jack Nicholson pay for beers? Not to me. Not to me. (laughs) I've given away a few beers there. I had another one with Dustin Hoffman. I had an audition with him. And then there he was at the stadium, uh, Paul Simon. Uh, there were there were a few. I don't know if you remember Anthony Mason. He played of course. for the Knicks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a thing in the where I mentioned. Just so happens, he's there behind the Yankee dugout, and I said, "Oh, you got to see this." And I took off my shirt, and underneath, I was wearing an Anthony Mason uniform shirt, and he. He couldn't believe it, and uh, I high fived his son, and it was just so incredible that that day that I saw him, I was wearing his shirt, and he was a, another one of those really gritty players. That a I true loved. New York player. Oh yeah, and another one that died too young. Another one that died too young. Yeah. One more story before we finish up with a lightning round. Um, I'm a fan of this guy, so I, I thought you could retell it. Um, Larry David told you to fuck off. <laughs> he did. What happened? When he was starting and when he first had his career going with Jerry Seinfeld, running around New York to all the comedy clubs, Larry David was a stand-up comic. And a friend of mine went to see him in a club, and it was about 2 30. We didn't specifically go to see him, but he was on stage. And he's up there at 2, 2.30 in the morning, and very often the guys that are up at that time, they're just either trying out new material or they're just conversing with the audience to just see if they may end up coming up with a joke that they'll use when they play Saturday night at 9 o'clock in the club. So he was conversing with my friend and I, and we were a little lit up. It's 2.30 in the morning, so we had a few drinks. And it was basically us and maybe two busboys in the back, and that was it. And we were conversing with him, and maybe it was the drinking, but I thought we were funnier than he was. Were you conversing or were you heckling? No, we were conversing. Okay. It was going back and forth, and then it's strange, but it sounded as if he was heckling us. You know, like he would use us to to have this conversation and mine whatever he could out of it, and then almost speak either a little derogatorily or just, he it just had some attitude back, and I didn't appreciate it. And so I said to my friend, listen, I, I'm getting out of here. And so I said, I'll meet you in the bar. So I went to the back to the bar, and then inside of three minutes, Larry David said, all right, good night, everybody. You know, <laughs> adios to the busboys and to my friend. And then my friend came to the bar and he said, you know, what was that all about? You know, because I guess I had a little attitude when I said, I'm getting out of here. And maybe I was loud or something. So he comes back to the bar and then Larry David comes back to the bar. And uh, my friend says, go ahead. Why don't you go over and apologize to him? I, I, I don't have anything to apologize for. But I went over anyway. And I said, listen, I'm sorry what happened in there. I shook his hand, Larry David. I'm sorry what happened in there. But let's face it, you got no act. So now he he looked at me like you're looking at me right now. And he said, fuck you. And then I took the bait and I said, is that the best you got? <laughs> you know? And then my friend who's like 6'4", six, six, he stepped between us because he was sensing something might be brewing here. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And that's where it sort of settled down. And because I, I, I extended the olive branch to him to apologize for something that there was nothing to apologize for. But, um, but it was an interesting, then there was a follow-up to that where I was watching an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm and he had been cast in a movie on the show. I don't know if you know about that. And Richard Lewis, who plays his buddy on the show, says to him, how did you get cast in this movie? You can't act. <laughs> and he was wearing a wig and he was playing a mafiosa Don on some movie that Martin Scorsese cast him in. And so Larry David said to Richard Lewis, Scorsese saw me handling a heckler in the comedy store in New York, and he thought I could play this part. Now I'm watching this episode and I'm thinking, was Martin Scorsese there that night? Wow. <laughs> I know, that was insane. That was insane. But, um, yeah. That was ni- there's nice symmetry there, though, even if it's not. It, if it came back full circle. It did, it did. Um, and that was, that was Larry David before he figured out what worked best for him. He started as a stand-up. Yeah. And then they created this show that really just hung on the threads the first year. And they were lucky they got the second year, and then it found its footing, and then, as they say, the rest is history. The rest is definitely history. Oh, my goodness. Some of the best stuff ever. Um, Lightning round, I usually end every interview with just some quick questions that can be one-word short answers, and everyone is tailored a little bit differently for the guest. Ah. In your case, it's going to be very baseball-centric because your career uh, and your experience at Yankee Stadium is probably— I'm probably never going to talk to anybody that's spent more time there. I think that's fair to say, right? I think that's fair to say, yeah. (laughs) Favorite ball player? Thurman Munson. Although, wait, Willie Mays. But as a Yankee, Thurman Munson. Favorite Yankee team? Those Munson, those Munson, uh, Reggie Jackson teams of 1977, 78. Favorite Yankee coach or manager, I should say? Casey Stengel. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking, and I'm that young. I, I only, I sadly only go Do, back as far as Joe Torre. You don't know Casey Stengel? No. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Casey Stengel. Oh, you got to read up on Casey okay. Stengel. He spoke what was known as Stengelese, where he, he had, this is more than one word. Sure. No. But he said, they said, how do you handle the players in spring training? He says, there's 25 guys on the team, 10 guys like me, 10 guys hate me. The trick is keeping the five who are undecided from the ten who hate me. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great one. Yeah. Favorite era or period of time working as a vendor? In the beginning. I guess in the 70s. You know, I was young and I was hustling and, and it was the late 70s when they had Thurman Munson and Lou Pinella and those guys they were a real scrappy team. Billy Martin was the manager. And they had a good energy and they really wanted to win. Favorite item or tchotchke that you vended? <laughs> tchotchke. We used to have uh, bobblehead dolls that we sold. And that was actually my 
least favorite item. It came to mind because you had to attend to them very carefully if, uh, because they broke. They're fragile. Very fragile. They had to be taken care of with the straw and the box. I hated those. But as far as uh, favorite items, they had retired player numbers. So they would have seven for Mickey and nine or whatever. And they were easy to store in my souvenir case because they were just pins. And uh, I enjoyed those because the people really, it was special to the people. It was different than just a shirt or a hat. It was specific. I wanted number 15 for Thurman Munson or, um, you know, Yogi, number eight, all those guys. What's on your plate now? Well, I have the book, which I've been publicizing and getting out. Uh, My Life in Yankee Stadium, 40 Years as a Vendor, and Other Tales of Growing Up Somewhat Sane in the Bronx. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's been a long time coming. And uh, so I've been promoting that. I, um, I do a lot of theater here in Los Angeles. Is L.A. home now? Yes, yeah, and so I'm involved in a theater company in North Hollywood called The Road Theater. And uh, I did a play in New York that I acted in. And it was a very interesting play about the border, the Mexico-Arizona um, border. And it's I did it 12 years ago, but of course it's still so topical and really essential. And so we're pitching it to hopefully get it done, and I would be directing it. And, um, and it's telling stories. And, you know, that's what the theater is, and that's what acting is. And so it's just telling stories. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. It's not, it's not black and white because it's, it's, it's a fascinating story about a man who's searching for his daughter who was trying to cross the border to see her husband who came a year or two earlier. And so the father is looking for the daughter and he runs across a guy who is a Minuteman who's protecting the border and protecting, quote unquote, you know, the United States from people like him. And it's how they converse and they don't become buddies, but they listen. And that's a beautiful thing. And we need to do that is to just listen because, you know, the country's kind of getting torn apart. And so we have to be open to that if we're going to coexist. So that's a project that I'm working on, and we're trying to turn that actually even into a screenplay. And, um, and I'm working on another screenplay that I have. I, I co-wrote a script called Umpires, taking my baseball experience and putting that together into a movie. And it's, I think it's an interesting story. It's about an umpire who cheats and his young protege knows that he's cheating and he doesn't quite know what to do about it. It's an ethical story. And, um, and as I say, you know, sometimes cops cheat, sometimes politicians cheat, but hopefully the umpire doesn't cheat. And in this instance he does. And it's not simply for money as some people might think, Oh, everybody does this for money, but it's a different angle to it. And so, um, I'm tweaking that and hopefully get that out. You have $20 million? (laughs) (laughs) Stuart, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. 